Brian Smith here, and welcome to the Dream Path Podcast, where I try to get inside the heads of talented creatives from all over the world. My goal is to demystify and humanize the creative process and make it accessible to everyone. Now let's jump in. Jason Moore, welcome back to the Duocast. As usual, Brian, thank you for inviting me back. I appreciate it. Yeah, let's talk about Mark Pickerel. What'd you think of that interview? Oh man, that was a great interview. You know, and and despite the you know the background noise issues that we had, I think the audio turned out stellar. It was really great sound. I was really worried about it. You did a nice job with it. Yeah, I was worried about it too going into it, but not really an issue much. There's a few spots where there's a creaky chair or you know a car driving by or something like that, but it kind of adds to the kind of the feel of where you guys were, the ambience, you know. Yeah, it does. Yeah, and it kind of gave you like you felt like you were sitting in an antique shop, and that's great because that's what you guys were doing right yeah it was kind of cool to see the the photos that came out of that session and rob frazier took some amazing black and white photos that we posted on the website and put on social media oh yeah but just the gritty back room of an antique store feel Mm -hmm. of those photos really added a lot to the context and i think if listeners um, haven't listened to that episode yet you know go to the website check out the photos that were taken of that interview. You just get a sense of the vibe in that room that day. Mm -hmm. And I think it would be uh, nice to have going into listening to that chat. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm glad that you were able to sit down with him and talk about his journey. Um, You know, I I only knew him from being the drummer of the Screaming Trees, Mm -hmm. which is one of my favorite bands of all time and one of the original grunge bands in the Pacific Northwest. Right. I just remember a friend of mine who had the tape or had a tape of Uncle Anesthesia back in the day. And I really liked it because it was something different than the crap that was still considered mainstream rock at that time, other than maybe Alice in Chains, who had facelift out of, you know, the previous summer. But, you know, in radio, I worked in radio and we were still being force fed bands like Warrant and Poison and Guns N' Roses, <laughs> which were pretty much dominating the airwaves and also dominating MTV at that time. So it was refreshing to hear bands like The Screaming Trees and, you know, Soundgarden, Mudhoney, Nirvana, and of course Pearl Jam a little bit later on that just became a major shift in musical consciousness at that time. So to sit down with a pioneer of that sound and that time, it was just felt like something special. Ah, I love the way you phrased that, a shift in musical consciousness. Mm-hmm. That's exactly the way I feel about it because Uncle Anesthesia was my portal into the Screaming Trees. So I came in kind of late. Mm -hmm. You know, they started in the mid 80s and then I think Uncle Anesthesia was like 1991. Yeah. That was the first Screaming Trees album that I listened to. And then I started to go a little deeper into the catalog and uh, and I found out, oh, they're from Ellensburg? What? Mm -hmm. Like I haven't heard of any bands from Ellensburg. And um, as you know, being 30 miles away from Yakima, it's like, that's an even smaller town than Yakima. Yeah. And it really raises a lot of questions like, how did this happen? Like, how did this <laughs> great music come from this area that's like basically a podunk town? Right. But, um, you know, Mark's story is pretty compelling because a lot of folks, when they think about bands that shift the musical consciousness of America, of the world, mm-hmm. in terms of the grunge movement, they probably don't think about small town bands. They think about Los Angeles. They think about Seattle, Mm -hmm. uh, New York, that type of thing. Right. 
maybe San Francisco, but Ellensburg, Washington, you know, talk about coming out of nowhere. Right. But um, yeah, it was, it was really cool to talk to Mark because he's one of these guys who's so humble and yet you find out through research and through talking to him that he has been part of some amazing projects, including recording with Kurt Cobain and Mark Lanigan on a Nirvana track or two tracks actually. That's right. In the late eighties. Yep. And so he has got this posse of people, this crew, this inner circle of folks that he's connected with ever since the mid eighties. And that has taken him through this journey of starting all kinds of bands, new sounds, new connections, new relationships. Mm-hmm. And um, then he starts in Mark Pickerel and his praying hands. And because of those connections that he made previously, he's collaborating with Duff McKagan from Guns N' Roses, mm. gets called by Brandy Carlisle to record on her first album and then a later album. And you realize that there are folks like Mark out there that their story is not told yet. Right. There's no book on them. Mm-hmm. You can read their Wikipedia page, but it really doesn't tell the full story. So it was a privilege to sit down and be the facilitator for bringing that story out. And it just felt so special. And that was confirmed actually when uh, somebody posted on Twitter that this interview was essential listening. Hmm. And I'm going to read that tweet here. Okay. There's a guy named Dan from the band Sun Dodger. Okay. It's a Seattle band apparently, but he started in Ellensburg or in Yakima, somewhere in Eastern Washington. And he tweeted, I recommend this as essential listening for Northwest musicians. Mm. I used to frequent Mark's Ellensburg record store in the early 90s as a teenager, musician trying to become a rock star. Like him, I moved from behind the drums to the front, and his story is inspiring. Hashtag Seattle Musicians. Nice. Yeah, it's it really cool. And I, I took a screenshot of one of his comments to, uh, to Mark's tweet about the show, and I put it on Instagram. And I, I really appreciate when folks chime in and give feedback on an episode like that because it confirms for me what I suspected from the beginning. As I walked out of that antique shop after that interview, I knew I had something special on record. Oh, for sure. And that uh, you were going to make it sound great. But I really never know for sure until I get that first response from someone. And and all it takes is one. Right. It just takes one listener to connect with and you realize, you know what? It's not just me. This really is something special. And um, it's kind of like, you know, golf. And this is kind of a strange analogy, but (laughs) I'm not a big golfer. I golf maybe if I'm lucky once a year, but usually it's like once every two or three years. Okay. And when I go out, I'm terrible. I lose... (laughs) almost all of my golf balls and I'm borrowing golf balls from the folks that I'm golfing with. (laughs) But I would say once every time I golf, so out of 18 holes, I hit one shot, maybe two that are perfect. Like it's a drive off the tee and it looks like a PGA pro drive. Nice. And so for me, all it takes to keep going back and to keep wanting to golf is to hit that one shot. So whenever one listener responds, it's kind of like that one perfect drive. It's like one listener responds and says, this is great. You need to check this out. That for me is my perfect PGA Pro drive and it keeps me going. So Dan at Sun Dodger Band, thanks for chiming in. Thanks for listening. Yeah, we really appreciate that. And it's true, you know, and Mark to me has this really cool vibe 
you know, when I hear like the Praying Hands Band or Pickerel and the Peyote 3, this is what it reminds me of. It reminds me of driving down the road in like a 57 Chevy convertible with the top down, guitar sitting in the passenger seat, listening to Johnny Cash, and just driving on this long, stretched out highway in the middle of nowhere. And that's just where my mind goes when I when I see Mark and hear his music, and it's just where it takes me. Yeah. And, you know, I just, I just, yeah, I love the fact that he runs an antique shop too. You know, I'm really into going to uh, random shops like that and just looking at the old records and retro looking lamps and rugs and just anything that kind of takes you back a few decades, back to the 70s or the 60s. And it's just very cool. You know, his whole vibe. It is really cool. And his hair is really cool. Oh, he's got cool hair. Uh, he's got hair. That's amazing. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, I a lot of it. I'd love to have half of his hair, you know? Yeah, his uh, antique shop where we recorded the interview is appointment only. But if you want to go check it out, you know, send him an email and see if you can go, you know, check out some of his stuff. There's all kinds of costumes and leather jackets and yeah. jean jackets and hats and boots and things that um, are one of a kind. Yeah, I saw that. I'm, I'm definitely going to call him and make an appointment or send him an email. Right on. So, Jason, we also have another episode to talk about, a bonus episode with Jeffrey King. Mm, mm-hmm. What'd you think of that one? That was a great episode. It's another episode in which we get to hear a different perspective from another great screenwriter or, or what they call, and he's also what they call a showrunner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the first showrunner I've interviewed. Mm-hmm. So for folks who listen to that interview, um, it is with Jeffrey Paul King, who is the creator and showrunner of The Republic of Sarah. And what I really appreciated about that chat with Jeffrey is that he's very off the radar, off the grid type of guy. Mm -hmm. So there's almost nothing on social media about him. There's just a couple of interviews here and there about his work on the Republic of Sarah. But before that, he worked on Elementary Mm. for years. He was a writer and producer on the the show Elementary, with, uh, which is a Sherlock Holmes CBS series. And it's um, got Lucy Liu in it. And it's, it's a great, very, very smart show. You can tell that the folks that are writing on that show are, are wicked smart. Yeah. Or as Matt Damon would say in Goodwill Hunting, wicked smart. <laughs> yep. But what I like about Jeffrey is that, you know, he's so off the radar. And the reason he is, is that he works his ass off on doing real stuff. You know, he's running a show. Right. He's writing. He's producing. And he must be one of the hardest working people in Hollywood based upon our chat. We talked about that in the interview, actually, uh, work ethic and what it means to be a writer right now in television and in film and what is required of writers in television and film, what is required of showrunners. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like it's just brutal. Oh, yeah. But he's doing it. He's doing the thing. And because he is working so hard on that, he's not anywhere on social media. I don't know. I just. I just really respect that type of work ethic, and it shows, too, when you look at the work product and what's being put out there. Mm -hmm. This is a guy that cares a lot about what goes onto the screen, and there's just so much that happens before the shoot and before you see that episode up on television. You get a sense of that when you listen to this interview with Jeffrey King. I've always wanted to have a showrunner on the show because I hear about them all the time, you know, the, the showrunners that have like a seven to nine season run and their schedule is so brutal and they're, you know, working 12 to 15 hour days and they're working seven days a week. Yeah. And, um, and this is one of those guys, maybe not seven days a week. That's probably an exaggeration, but a lot of hours. And, um, 
they're true creators. Yeah. You know, they, they create something out of, out of whole cloth, you know, like here's my idea. And with Jeffrey King, his idea for the Republic of Sarah came about very organically based upon his understanding of geology and geography and maps. And, um, and that sounds weird, but his undergraduate degree is in like, you know, cartography and geography or something like that. Yeah. And so you kind of, you kind of see how this organically came about this show. It's very much a part of him and his understanding of history and politics and relationships. And so it was really cool to, to kind of hear about that process. Yeah, it definitely would be fun to pick his brain. Yeah. One of the things that surprised me about the interview and he had stated in the interview was that he used to be a professional opera singer. And so I had to kind of look that up. He was, he was a singer until the age of 13. He performed as a boy soprano with the Boston Lyric Opera Company. I just found that to be interesting. This guy's got a whole gamut of uh, experience in all kinds of different things. Yeah. I didn't know about that about him before the interview. And uh, yeah, apparently he was a child opera star. Yeah. But one common thread I see with creatives like Jeffrey Paul King and and a lot of the filmmakers that I interview and actors is that their childhoods are typically filled with creative endeavors and their parents are very supportive of them getting into the arts in some way. Yeah. So it's nice to actually see that there's a connection there. Right. That these kids that are creatives as adults were you know, given creative opportunities when they were kids by their parents. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it works. It works, guys. So make sure you give those opportunities to your kids. Yeah, absolutely. So Jason, you and I have been watching the same series, mm -hmm. the Rick Rubin, Paul McCartney 321 series on Hulu. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Have you finished it yet? I just got through watching the sixth one yesterday. So what'd you think of the well, don't don't spoil anything for me, but what'd you think of the entire series? I'm only two episodes in. The entire series was great, and it kind of ended on kind of a note that it's not quite done. Like, it almost feels like there's more to come. Oh, well, that's, that's cool. Because, you know, Paul McCartney has such a vast career, you know, you can't just stop. You know, there's so much to cover. And um, I just love Paul McCartney. I, I feel like he's a family member. I mean, I he's been in my consciousness since I was born, basically. My parents listened to the Beatles since I was a baby, and it's just always been there in my musical psyche and something that I've always geeked out on is uh, listening to songs in their multi-track form, you know, dropping the faders on certain tracks, getting to hear the isolated tracks, the vocals all separate. It kind of makes up the whole fabric of a song. So mm -hmm. the fact that you have a famous producer like Rick Rubin standing there with Paul McCartney and breaking apart these songs track by track and listening to various mistakes and just hearing the rawness of those Beatles songs and those Paul McCartney songs that were recorded so many years ago. It's just such a treat. You know, we have Paul who's 79 now. He'll be 80 this year and he looks great. Oh, he's, he does for, for 79 for sure. And he can still kind of hit those high notes a little bit. I mean, he's not, not quite as, mm -hmm. not quite as strong as well, obviously, you know, when you're in your twenties and thirties, you can really belt it out. But, um, it's still, it makes you think that, you know, he's probably not going to be around very long in the scheme of things. And so it, it had to have been an honor for Rick to be able to sit down with Paul and ask him questions and listen to his stories and just something very cool. Definitely something that will go down in history. I agree. And I went in a little differently. My lens is a little different than yours in terms of the Beatles because I was not a huge Beatles fan growing up. What? I wasn't. You know, my parents did not. Oh. My parents did not have a single Beatles album. Oh, wow. They had a lot of vinyl, a lot of vinyl. 
but no Beatles. Hmm. And so my exposure to the Beatles came about later in life. And when I heard it, I was, you know, of course, how can you not love certain Beatles songs? You know, Let It Be, right? Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. And mm -hmm. they're obviously, you know, iconic mm -hmm. in music history and their songs are amazing. But for some reason, those songs are not in my heart as songs that, you know, sort of define my childhood or define my teens or um, I don't look at them with reverence like you do. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it just floored me to see how talented Paul McCartney was at age 79, mm. sitting down with Rick Rubin and just knocking out, you know, he would explain chord structure to Rick Rubin. It's like, this is how we look at, you know, how we looked at chords and, you know, <laughs> play a C chord and let's go up and just move a half step. And so he's, he's got this talent for understanding the foundation of a song. Right. And how a, how a song comes together and how it, you know, the parts of it and the mathematical equation of a song. And then of course, Rick Rubin, he's almost like a mythological figure in music who is this magic man who comes in and takes artists and takes their music and makes it something, you know, elevates it to yeah. a level that they couldn't have done without him, that type of thing. That's true, yeah. And so so Rick breaks down, as you were saying, Jason, breaks down these tracks and talks them through with Sir Paul. And what happens on screen is just mind-blowing. Yeah. To hear those songs broken down. And for instance, Penny Lane, I think that was in the second episode that I just saw last night, mm -hmm. the piccolo trumpet part and the story behind the piccolo trumpet in that song. Yeah. And how the, pic the piccolo trumpet, I think it was George Harrison who was, who had, no, no, George Martin. Yes. Who, the producer who had identified, he knew all these musicians, these orchestra musicians and yep. found this piccolo trumpet player. And I don't think Paul knew what a piccolo trumpet was before that recording session. Mm -mm. And then Paul is saying, you know, we need a higher note. We need you to hit these higher notes. And mm -hmm. the piccolo trumpet player is like, I can't do that. That's too high. Right. And Paul's, Paul's <laughs> like, you can do it. <laughs> Just do it. You know? Yeah. And he nailed it. He got it. He got it out. He sure did. But it's it's those little stories of the song, and not just the song, but a tiny little part in the song that really pull me in because you realize that every song that you listen to has a story and every note that you hear in a song has its own separate little story. Uh-huh. And there's so much history. There's so much that went into these recording sessions with George Harrison and John Lennon. And that relationship, that complicated, layered, nuanced relationship between all of the band members and how George Harrison was not a songwriter initially. No. And didn't really consider himself a songwriter, but turns out that he was a great songwriter. He was just kind of in the making. Exactly. And to see the history unfold in a very short episode, just a 30-minute episode. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I haven't been hugely impressed with Rick Rubin as a television personality. Yeah. You know, he's not really a dynamic, charismatic guy to be on television. I, I think his place is behind the scenes. Yeah. Maybe behind a mixing board. Mm hmm. The Rick Rubin is a, you know, is a great listener. And it, it's perfect for a series like that because you really don't watch a documentary about Paul McCartney and the songwriting process and breaking down these songs looking for a television personality that's going to, you know, wow you and kind of inject his own personality into the narrative. And so it's nice. It's it's nice that it's black and white. Mm -hmm. 
and Rick Rubin is just kind of in the background and you can kind of see him nodding. And, and most of it is just Sir Paul talking. Yeah. And chewing gum. Yeah. Which is weird. <laughs> yeah, and he does it all the way through. So yeah, just yeah. this giant wad of gum. It's like he might have three pieces in his mouth <laughs> chewing his gum constantly. But oh, yeah. other than the gum chewing, I found the last two episodes that I watched to be fantastic. And I'm looking forward to finishing it up this weekend. Yeah. I hope you get a chance to do that because it, it continues to be fascinating. There's, you learn something new. I, I learned something new from it and I've seen uh, the entire Beatles anthology. I've read books. So yeah, it's pretty fascinating and pretty cool. And they don't just do just, they don't just talk about the Beatles. They go into Paul McCartney and wings. They go into Paul's solo stuff. They talk about John Lennon stuff at one point, you know, I'm not going to spoil it for you, but there was a part where they listened to John Lennon just singing on his own and mm. double tracked vocal of a song called this boy. And I actually got emotional because, mm. you know, I'm thinking in my brain, you know, they recorded that in 1964. So John Lennon basically had like 14 years left of his life and didn't even know it. Yeah. So it was just, it's heartbreaking, you know, to think about that, but we have that wonderful music to listen to if you want to. And uh, just a talented group of four guys. Yeah. One more comment I'll make about Paul McCartney. Mm-hmm. And his genius. He made a comment in one of the two episodes that I watched that he doesn't read music and he doesn't write music. Right. And I was scratching my head after I heard that. I'm like, wait a minute. He doesn't write music. He doesn't read music. And then he continues talking and he says, yeah, it's just all in my head. Mm-hmm. And you look at the the chords that he plays, like Blackbird. Mm. I mean, just they, they actually have footage of him playing Blackbird on the guitar. Mm-hmm. And you're like, this guy's a fucking badass. Yeah. So how does he not write music and read music? But I think for him, it just comes from a very, I don't know if it's left brain or right brain, but you know, it's not the logical part of your brain. It's the artistic part of his brain and it just kind of flows out. And yeah, he knows how to play chords. And Mm -hmm. I think he for sure knows about chord progressions and bridges and, but, and it comes naturally to him, but he, he can't just sit down and tell you you know, the way a music professor would tell you right. how a song is structured. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love that about Paul McCartney because I don't have really that fundamental knowledge either. Yet it gives me hope that, you know, if I keep at it and I dive deep enough, maybe I can have that same flow that he has to write songs. Yeah. And, uh, you know, just so special to be able to see him sitting at the piano and just knocking out whatever it is, let it be or Eleanor Rigby or Michelle and Mm. playing these tunes and kind of showing you how they came together and what his thought process was. I know we're just kind of, you know, going on and on about this series, but it's pretty special. I agree. I thought it was great. Everybody should check it out. If you like Paul, if you like the Beatles. Nice. So last item on the agenda yeah. What do we have coming up next? Well, we're finally going to unleash the Chong, Tommy Chong. Yes, Tommy Chong. We've been waiting for a while on this one. Yeah, yeah. I've been editing this thing, and you know, you are right. He kind of bounces all over the place. <laughs> but it's very cool. It's very cool to just have Chong, just even if it was just his audio, but we've got video of him um, apparently in his bedroom, just kind of chatting with you, random stuff. So it's it's really cool. Mm-hmm. Really cool. Yeah. I think Tommy bouncing around so much is a product of the rapport that we established at the beginning. Sure. And I think he just felt comfortable talking about whatever was 
on the top of his mind. Sure. And our conversation went into some places that I did not expect it to go. <laughs> and so it was fun. But the result is it's a longer interview than most. I think the YouTube version is probably an hour and a half. Yeah. And we might chop the audio only version down by five or 10 minutes. Yeah. But um, it's it's really cool to talk to somebody like Tommy, who has been part of comedy history for decades now, and he is still at it. Yep. He's still creating. He's still writing scripts. He's still collaborating with Cheech Marin. You know, he's also got this business, marijuana mm. products, which we talk a little bit about, but not much. Mainly, we talk about his career and creativity. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I think Tommy... And, and I don't want this to sound, you know, negative or anything like that. I think uh, Tommy does frequently use marijuana. He admits it. Mm -hmm. And I think that that, I think that helps with the kind of conversation you guys had where it kind of bounced here and there, mm -hmm. it, at least in my opinion, because, you know, anytime I've ever smoked, I kind of get a little bit talkative and uh, you kind of forget where you're going. <laughs> so, right. Lowers your inhibitions a little bit, lowers your yeah, anxiety levels to the point where you kind of open up more than you would have otherwise. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, it, it helps you concentrate sometimes. Mhm. Mm but also it can lead to conversation that kind of f flies around in different areas and kind of takes different different roads here and there and you, then you kind of come back to the original point and go, "What were we talking about originally?" <laughs> I always love that about marijuana. You know, it's just, you could just have this. Well, I, I do that with, I do that without marijuana. So I got to be, <laughs> I got to go into these pretty sober. <laughs> yeah. I don't do it as much as I used to, but when I, I loved those times back in the day when I would have conversations with friends and we'd all be smoking and you'd start a conversation about one thing and then it goes five different directions. And then 30 minutes later, everybody's like, what do, what did we start talking about? How did we get here? <laughs> And it's just, that's, that's the fun part aside from the actual high of it. <laughs> well, my friend, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for chatting with me today. Oh yeah. And we shall talk again after the Tommy Chong episode launches. I'm looking forward to it, Brian. Thank you. Right on brother. Have a great weekend. You too. Hey, thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If so, I have a favor to ask. Can you go to wherever you listen to podcasts and leave me a review? Your feedback is what keeps this podcast going. You can also check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook with the handle at DreamPathPod. And as always, go find your dream path.